Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Goods of Film Podcast. We are here in October, and I'm getting a little loosey-goosey at the controls. It's my turn to host, and I just flubbed up. We lost an hour of recording. 102 episodes. It's going to happen at some point. This is our 103rd, so it's a bummer, but here we are nonetheless, ready to persist. That's right. We're going to work through it we're going to press forward we scare because we care because this episode is intended as a chapter in our recurring violent ends series where we consider two films with similar premises that arrive at very different endings one of which is typically bloody and violent and racks up a body count and the movies that i brought to the table are Monsters, Inc. from 2003, the coverage of which was just lost to the abyss because I didn't hit record on either program we used. There was no safeguard. And The Cabin in the Woods from 2012, at least that's when it was released. So we have conferred, Dan and I, and we came to the conclusion that y'all are probably pretty familiar with Monsters, Inc. We both are. And so we're going to kick things off talking Cabin in the Woods. Sound good? That works for me, Brian. And then maybe we can do a little bit of a Monsters, Inc. dive at the end. All right. Yeah, sounds good to me. So the Cabin in the Woods, it came out in my senior year of college. But it wasn't shot then. Weirdly, it was shot in 2009 and then shelved for three years. Because... I'm not exactly sure why they did this. The studio politics or something. That's interesting. But, yeah. It was created as kind of a loving hate letter. I think Joss Whedon it was who said to horror fans and the genre. Especially it's like a bitter response to the torture porn trend of the 2000s. Although, like, the specific references that we see in the movie, most of them date from earlier. It's like 80s horror and and some 90s stuff. Uh, But it's just a metafictional horror tribute overall. And I remember I went and I saw this, and I wasn't fully expecting what I got. Because I think the trailer did a good job of hiding its true nature. Yeah, it's it's really unique. I I didn't know what this was going to be at all. I mean, I will say you, you maybe spoiled it a little bit just from a premise context by lumping it with Monsters, Inc. That kind of uh, led me down predicting some of the things that were going to happen successfully. But it did a good job of like uh, from marketing and stuff, me having no idea about what it was going to be about. Right. I remember in the trailer they and on the poster, it mostly just focused on this house this cabin and it had like moving parts like on the poster it's almost like a rubik's cube so that there was going to be some kind of puzzle going on something more than meets the eye but it didn't really tell you anything other than it was a horror movie and joss whedon wrote it come see it Uh, joss whedon very hot name around 2012 out of vogue now yeah he he's canceled oh really yeah well the revolution, the revolution always eats its children. Like, if you're riding the progressive treadmill, eventually you're going to be out of vogue, so. But, let's press on. So, yes, Joss Whedon, he wrote around this time also Avengers. Did he direct it, too? Uh, I don't remember. Was it the Russos? I think it was Whedon, actually. Yeah, I think so. So, yeah. We'll say now... This movie is easy to spoil because right at the jump, things start happening that you don't expect just hearing that this is a horror movie called The Cabin in the Woods. So, listeners, ye be warned. But in the opening credits of the movie, we see a few medieval-style sketches of torture and human sacrifice. 
Abruptly, though, it smash cuts to two guys in dress shirts and ties sitting at their desks discussing plans for the weekend ahead. I've mentioned a couple times on the podcast that when I watch things on Amazon Prime, there's like a little bar of facts that scrolls by. And it said that this was at least partly intended to confuse people and make them think they'd walked into the wrong movie. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely kind of jarring. These guys' names are Hadley and Sitterson. They're played by Bradley Whitford from The West Wing, the dorky Josh character, and Richard Jenkins, who, like two episodes ago, we didn't know his name. <laughs> but he's the dad from Step Brothers, the dad from Netflix's Dahmer show. Basically always playing the, like, disgruntled dad where things are getting out of hand. Here playing sort of a twist on that role. But always pleasant to see him. And I think we need to, at this point, extend surprise John C. Riley to the entire cast of Step Brothers. <laughs> so, surprise Richard Jenkins. Surprise Mary Steenburgen. Yeah. Right. Surprise Adam Scott. Oh, man. That's the best surprise of all. Um, and then you mentioned... Uh, so what's the name? It's Brad Whitford. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So Bradley Whitford also is the creepy dad in Get Out. Um, have you seen Get Out, Brian? I have not seen any of the Jordan Peels yet. Um, and he he's pretty good in that. That whole cast is good, but but I really liked him in that. And he was doing something different from what I've seen him do before there. Although he's still himself, you know, so mm -hmm. it's kind of got that same tone to some extent. And this time watching Cabin in the Woods, it had me thinking of Return of the Living Dead, which starts out with employees going about their day like at the end of a work week, talking about the weekend ahead, except things are about to devolve into monster-filled chaos. Hilarious screaming. Exactly. And before these workers can go on break, they have to lead a team in completing a mysterious project that we're going to gradually learn more about. So these guys are like middle management. They hold positions of authority, but they're not at the top of the chain. In that regard, they're a little like Mike and Sully. Oh yeah, definitely. But meanwhile, elsewhere in the world of the story, a tried and true horror setup is unfolding. Because a group of teenagers has decided they're going to take an RV and go on a camping trip where they are going to stay at a cabin in the woods. That's the thing. <laughs> the group is made up of archetypal slasher victim characters. And at the beginning, it kind of toys with their archetypes. Like, it's showing that they have a little more depth than you would expect. But even so, this Scooby-Doo crew, <laughs> you have one guy who's athletic one guy who is studious you have a girl who is chaste and one who is slutty and you have a stoner who looks like shaggy and that's our group with a, a joss whedon cast i just expected more of these faces to be familiar but there's only one familiar face at least for me of this group i would guess that's chris hemsworth as Kurt the Athlete. Yeah. Thor here. Thor in this movie. Yeah. And the main girl, Dana, has a recognizable face, although I couldn't place her in a, a role. I'm sure I've seen her in another movie, but she just kind of has big Emma Stone eyes. Yeah. She looked like an amalgamation of like three different actresses, Emma Stone being one of them. So, Dan, having just watched the entire Halloween series as well as other slasher franchises. Do these types hold up? Are some of these tropes apt? Yeah, I mean, um, Halloween gets up its own ass in lore a little bit, but you definitely, whenever you see the teens, it's always a combination of this. I mean, 
like the first Halloween is pretty much on the surface about like the violence and scariness and dirtiness of sex, because it's only after you start boning that you start getting stabbed. And Jamie Lee Curtis is the virgin in that. And she's thinking about if she wants to go out with this guy and getting chased down by Michael Myers, but she doesn't end up getting killed by Michael Myers because she hasn't done the deed yet. And then, yeah, you have, you definitely have, I don't think that one has a stoner, to be honest. Not not a memorable one, at least. And that's not a trope you see too often in the, the Halloween ones, but I definitely feel like it's it's a cornerstone. It's really more just like your general high school tropes as much as anything else here. Fair enough. I, I do like this stoner guy, though. What's what's his character's name? He's Marty. He I got to say, he ranks up there for movie stoners. He's got like a real, real good delivery of his lines. Right. And he kind of unexpectedly takes over the movie. Yeah. He is like he's ready to Urkel or Fonz and bloom into protagonist status. Right. We can talk about it when we get there from the plot, but it, it feels like they realized that they had a character they liked, whereas none of the other characters were particularly memorable. And like, let's get this guy more to do. Let's let's do a little more of this guy. There could be something to that. But this cabin that they're going to, the viewer quickly learns that the entire house, as well as the forest surrounding it, are actually a very advanced soundstage for the production of a horror movie. Not only that, but horror movies are the product of shadowy government agencies. And these are rituals that are put on. The reason being to appease Lovecraftian giant monsters that are poised to destroy the world if the steps aren't followed right. Yeah, and, and the exact nature of this takes basically the whole movie to, to really unfold. Right. And that's because the structure is that we keep cutting back and forth between these suits in like a bunker controlling everything and the kids in the cabin. And it cuts back and forth. We see what the puppeteers are doing that's what the stoner calls the agents and what their actions are causing to happen in the house but because it's a ritual this is the explanation for why horror films as we know them are so formulaic this is the ancient decree it must happen this way we have these stereotypes the athlete the scholar the fool the whore the virgin. It's interesting how they kind of accentuate that. It's like they, the puppeteers, I guess we call them, have like these mechanisms, like pheromone sprays almost, that get them to like revert to even more simple mindedness, like dumb horror movie behavior and tropiness. Right, they're like drugging them to be stupider than they normally would be. And several times they talk about, early in the movie, how they're more than you would expect. Uh, like, the jock is a sociology major, and just that they have more going on intellectually. And yet, now, these government grunts are doping them up. It's like if half of Monsters, Inc. was set where we followed the kids around from their day to day before they got scared. <laughs> yeah. So jumping the gun here, maybe, but was this a good pairing, Dan? Did this have legs? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, in the bit of the recording that, that we lost, unfortunately I had a little bit of a ramble about postmodernism as a storytelling mechanism. And I think both of these are postmodern stories about being scared and like taking the visceral notion of being scared and turning it into a commodity and watching it get created. And to me, when I use the phrase postmodern, I mean like taking elemental story forces that we understand in like traditional modern storytelling 
and reacting to them and pushing back against them and distorting them. And sometimes meta, not always necessarily meta, but to me, these are both very postmodern stories for sure. And both about getting scared and just about like an office in a workplace where your job is to create scares, but for, you know, it's for different reasons in the two stories, but, um, similar premises. Yeah. But essentially it's both to keep society going. That's true. Yeah. And multiple countries have these government agencies performing the ritual. The two most successful organizations being our own American one and the Japanese branch, which is obviously a nod to horror movies like The Ring and The Grudge being popular. The kids settle in at the cabin and we just get horror trope after horror trope. So like before they get there, they have to ask directions from a gas station attendant who's creepy. (laughs) And what I like is that like anytime one of these things happen, it cuts to the only half interested office workers down in the bunker and they have like slang for all of it. And so this dude at the gas station is the harbinger. It's like TV tropes or something. Right. It's it's a little like Scream that they've all read. They all know the central texts. They've seen all the movies and they have this shorthand. Things get worse when the group of teenagers ventures into the scary basement of the cabin. Because down in this basement is this wide assortment of scary objects. Like, uh curiosity shop from the twilight zone or something just any creepy doll and puppet and music box you could imagine there's like old reels of film and waxworks and like dentist models and puzzle boxes really going ham with the set decorating would you want to walk around that cellar and see all their all the things that are there yeah When I saw this movie, there were like several steps where my appreciation for it leveled up, you know, tears. And this was one of them. It's like, ooh, look at all that stuff. And they do it really effectively because each of the people like goes to a different corner of the room and picks up some different trinket that they're messing with. And it cuts back to the bunker and the goons the government guys are like salivating oh what are they touching what is it what did they pick because they have a pool going and the way it works is whatever spooky object the protagonists interact with decides what monster gets released (laughs) did you happen to pause the movie dan and read the board no Oh, man. Watch it again, pause it, and read the board. Because there's so many good monsters listed on this board. And, you know, I only caught the briefest glimpse of it the first time I watched it. But even then, I was hoping, like, which of these monsters are we going to get to see? It's it's all kinds of things. Like, there's a unicorn on the board. Uh, a merman. Uh, But also all the more common monsters that you would expect. You know, they got zombies and scarecrows. uh, Also some like more specific reference ones. There's a line item that says evil molesting tree, (laughs) which is from The Evil Dead by Sam Raimi. Oh, right. A whole bunch of of this movie is Evil Dead. Okay. Like the the whole setup of the cabin is very Evil Dead. Uh, Not that that has you know a monopoly on horror movies at a cabin but this cabin specifically is very much like the evil dead cabin Mm -hmm. and uh i think they even do have deadites on the board which is what they call the monsters in those i need to catch up with those i watched those in college but it's pretty fuzzy for me at this point but Many possibilities. Dozens of monsters that could be unleashed, but what they touch in this basement is going to decide which it actually is, and that is going to score a pot of money for whichever 
department within this organization <laughs> selected it in the pool. So there's satire here. There is people profiting off human suffering and taking a distanced view to that suffering. Right. Commodifying it for the benefit of society. But also to line their own pockets. Yeah. Yeah. And what the kids end up picking is they read this old diary. Uh, they read the Latin aloud, which is also very Evil Dead. That's what sets things off in that movie. But this Latin that they chant releases a so-called redneck zombie torture family. <laughs> I almost think it would have been more apt if it had been like a mutant redneck torture family. Okay. Like a Hills Have Eyes type thing. Or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But the fact that they're also undead was a little weird. They're cool though. It's, it's cool character designs. But one of the techs in the facility is like, oh, I picked zombies. I should get some of the pool money. And, and Richard Jenkins says, oh, no, no. You picked zombies. These are the redneck zombie torture family. It's a whole different species. <laughs> like an elephant in an elephant seal. Which is a great line. Yeah, that's good. So now these zombies are running around torturing and killing the young folks at the cabin. Yeah, and, and this is where I was kind of surprised, but I I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. I, I really was unsure. And then they just start dying real fast. We're like at the middle point of the movie. I was like, I wonder where this is going to go from here, because they were dying like one a scene. Yeah, they definitely tear through them. But that's because we've got some business at the back end. One of the characters who seemingly dies in this massacre is that stoner guy from earlier, but not before he had started to piece things together. He was, like, noticing the hidden microphones and some of the evidence that they were being manipulated. So, seemingly he gets spiked by one of the zombies... But later on, he turns up again alive. And I always like this gag when the stoner is just saying stoner stuff, but it also happens to be right, not necessarily because of any profound insight by the stoner. Sometimes, yeah, but I feel like it happens every now and then where the stoner says something, not necessarily in this movie specifically, but just in movies in general, that ends up being true in some way that he didn't quite mean. And... I was enjoying when his, like, his rambles were hitting on the truth in some way. Yeah, he's entertaining. He has a bong that transforms into a coffee mug. And <laughs> one of the times when he's stressed out, he says, I'm going to go read a book with pictures. <laughs> I remember that. And then in the next scene that we see him, he's on his bed reading Little Nemo. The old vintage comic strip that we talked about in our history of animation. Mm -hmm. And he had a good line. He said, Nemo, man, you gotta wake up. This shit is topsy turvy. It's <laughs> a good line. Fran Kranz, I think. Kranz. Yeah, I have no idea how to say this. Is it Fran Kranz? Fran Kranz? No, I, I'm not sure either. <laughs> Who can say? Probably him. <laughs> One would hope. And his parents. But the agency had assumed that they were down to just the final girl. And the final girl can survive the movie. So they thought they were good. They had already busted out the beers. And they were bringing out the tequila. Celebrating, ready for the weekend. But no. This guy's alive. That throws a wrench into everything. Moreover, the fool, the stoner, Marty is now leading the final girl down the rabbit hole. He has found his way to the elevator that brought the zombies up out of the ground, and the two of them ride it back into the facility. Yeah, and this was blowing my mind because it started to occur to me that some of the people that we had met in the company were also like 
characters that you would have in a horror movie. And I was like, oh, it's like mirroring each other. It's not just that we have the horror movie on the outside, but it's almost like on the inside is one, too. I wonder if this is going to lead to anything. Oh, yeah, because there are some people on the staff who are not fully on board with this setup that they've got killing teenagers in the name of the greater good. They some of them are squeamish. Right. There's one that kind of matches the quote unquote virgin archetype. There's like the kind of brainier guy who's skeptical too. Yeah. But now, yeah, the worlds are coming together. Dana, the final girl, and Marty the stoner are riding this elevator down into this fortress. And they ride past other elevator cars containing all the other monsters they might have unleashed. And this is now the next time that my appreciation jumped. It's like, oh man, we actually get to see the monsters. (laughs) Because, well, one is a knockoff pinhead from Hellraiser who instead of pins he's got buzz saws in his head and then we see another one that's just a straight up ghost in a cage and it's actually like a scary ghost it's like you know it's not too different from Marley or something but like the scariest version of that that you could have with the chains and the the... I think we get the unicorn too don't we Okay, well, the unicorn comes in a little while. Okay. Don't jump the gun, but but we'll see what we get. Uh, they're, so they're, like, going cell by cell, and we even get a shot where it, like, zooms out, and, yeah, we see a ton of these cages. And there's, like, giants and the shining twins and just any monster that you could think of is suddenly here on the screen uh, as a possibility, as a Chekhov's gun, you might say. And they continue on their journey, And now the teens are in the same building that these agents that we've seen the whole movie are. They thought they were safe, but now they're united. And upon being discovered, the government agents are basically like, yeah, you know, we've been doing this, but we have a good reason for it. Because if the ritual isn't carried out, the... Cthulhu's basically are going to rise up and destroy the planet. We do this sacrifice to keep them happy, keep them complacent, and we just have to do it. Otherwise, humanity is going to be destroyed. So let us kill you, please. And the kids are not on board with that. The teens decide they're going to fight back. They kind of fight their way to this uh, key panel like a, a control board. And for some reason, this board has a button on it that opens all the cells. <laughs> all at once. All at once. And so now all the monsters are loose. I was geeking out. Man, uh, yeah. So now all of those things that were on the whiteboard and you were wondering if maybe you might see and then most of them you kind of saw in the cages... Now they're on full display doing their monster darndest. And soon there is blood all over the place. Lots of blood. So, Dan, what are some things we see in this scene? Well, I guess I'll start with the one I already said. The unicorn pops out at this point and he like charges down one of the agents and impales him with the unicorn horn. That got a laugh out of me. There's like so many different things and it's just so chaotic. There's like a scorpion type guy. I don't know what that was, but it's not just monsters. It's like, uh, like creepy masked people who are ghost-like. Right. So there's a killer robot that's got a bunch of saws on arms. There's the strangers from that movie, which is that family that they wear like baby doll masks and they torture people. Okay. Yeah. And just all kinds of things. There's basically Pennywise. There's this thing that on the board was called the Tooth Fairy, but it's a ballerina that her whole face is teeth. There's scarecrow folk. Uh, There's goblins. And yeah, they are just all massacring the government folks now. 
so it's like 50 horror movies taking place at once and they have you know 150 closed circuit cameras all over the place so we just get a, a bank that it's like 50 or 75 movies all playing out at once this would have been insane to shoot it all like this would have been such an undertaking so damn much is going on a decent amount of it is cgi right but not all of it that's true but yeah the clown is a clown like they must have had a lot of extras um and like some of it is really gross and scary uh like <laughs> there's this group i think they're called the doctors on the board but they've got this guy like strapped to a table and they just start vomiting into his mouth gross i didn't catch that one it, yeah, lots of stuff happening. I think you have the girl from The Ring or some stand-in for that. Oh, right. Well, we saw her earlier because the Japanese effort was running parallel and it failed. So that lent extra urgency because the Japanese schoolgirls were able to trap the Ring girl. But things are just losing control. There's a dragon flying around. And <laughs> everyone is dying. But the girl and the stoner are continuing to stay alive up until the very end. They even outlive Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins. And they get down to the very depths of the facility where they run into the director, who is Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. I feel like she's destined to play God Actually, in Finding Dory, isn't she also, like, her voice is the symbol of God, too, in that one? I think so. I feel like I probably made some noise just now that was going to bother your editing because I was, like, tapping my foot, but we'll see. It, I had a question. Do we actually see the merman? I wasn't sure which one was the merman. Oh, of course we see the merman, Dan, because the whole movie, one of Bradley Whitford's through lines is he complains that all the times that they've done this ritual nobody's ever picked the merman <laughs> and then what should be the monster that emerges amidst this bloodbath to kill bradley whitford but the merman okay so that was the merman that killed right and it's of course it's the grossest merman you could imagine like the only cutesy thing is the unicorn, but everything else, even if it sounds silly on the board, is pretty monstrous. Like the tooth fairy, and the merman is like a blobfish thing. And once it eats Bradley Whitford, it sprays a bunch of blood out its blowhole. Oh yeah, that's right, yeah. But now Dana and Marty have met the director, Sigourney Weaver, and she implores them once again, please, this is the last chance, sacrifice yourself and things can go back to normal. You can save the world. But the teens decide that if this ritual is what's required to keep humanity alive, then maybe humanity isn't worth it. And they opt not to shoot each other. And so the film ends when the world ends. The giant old ones rise up and that's the end of the world. Right, we get like a giant CGI hand emerging from the ground. And when I first saw it, I thought this ending felt like a little out of character. You know, the teenagers had been fighting so hard to survive, and they'd made it this far. And then they're just like, yeah, whatever, the world can end. But if you think about the old ones, these demons who insist that the same movie must be made over and over are actually a metaphor for paying audiences, it makes sense. Because the director, when she shows up, says, in eight minutes, the old ones will rise and the world will end. And that line is spoken eight minutes from the end of the movie, when the audience is going to stand up from their seats and the world of the movie is going to cease to exist, just like happens with every movie. Oh yeah, that's true. I didn't think about it from that context, but the cinematic world will indeed end. Armageddon for all characters within until the sequel gets greenlit. No. Until the ritual is performed again. I had some thoughts on this ending from a thematic perspective. I actually liked it, but that's mostly just me 
because we've kind of talked about it. I'm in general not a natural horror movie fan. I mean, I watched them. I just binged the Halloween franchise. So, you know, I can't say that I'm not a horror fan, but I kind of view them more as thrill rides or novelties or something. There's a lot of cinephiles out there and I may very well put you in that category, Brian, where like horror movies are like their go-to. It's like something they really connect with and, and revere to some extent. And to me, that's just like, I don't know. I have never really connected with the the violent and the macabre in quite that way. And I guess my, my psychic impulses just aren't quite there. And I was like feeling pretty low after, after binging 13 Halloween movies. It's like, why does is this what gets made and what people watch and get excited about? Like, I know I did it myself, so... You know, yeah, I mean, honestly, at this point, you are probably getting up close to as many as I've seen. I haven't seen hardly any of the Halloween, so yeah, you put in the legwork. I think you're getting there. I'm, I'm more so thinking of some of the people who I, I chat with on other forums and follow them on Letterboxd and stuff that are just so into the all sorts of subgenres of horror movies. And I was just starting to feel a little bit icky about it. And then we watched this and I was like, okay. This is kind of making fun of that impulse, and that's that's resonating with me right now. So I, I I kind of dug it as like a scathing critique of the horror movie machinery and audience and stuff. Just kind of cynically thinking about it. Totally. And it's grown on me since the first time I saw it. A quote I pulled from the Wikipedia article, I, I believe it was Joss Whedon who said this. He said, it's a serious critique of what we love and what we don't about horror movies. I love being scared. I love that mixture of thrill, of horror, that objectification, identification thing of wanting definitely for the people to be all right, but at the same time hoping they'll go somewhere dark and face something awful. The things that I don't like are kids acting like idiots, the devolution of the horror movie into torture porn, and into a long series of sadistic comeuppances. Drew and I both felt that the pendulum had swung a little too far in that direction. Interesting. Yeah, so basically, exactly that. That's. I bet there are some horror movie fans out there who feel preached to and, and don't like this movie for that reason. Or at least don't like that ending. Because otherwise, it feels like a movie made for horror fans. Right, right. You know, breaking down the thing that they love and kind of satirizing it, which people tend to like to see the things that they know well. Have that be done to, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's both a love letter and a criticism. It's t- it's the two in one. Because, the, I mean, that monster scene. That's like the all-time best. It's every monster at once, Dan. <laughs> they did it. So, I will say, when I saw this the first time, I was very into it. I was walking to my car in the parking lot thinking, wow, what a great movie. And then I was driving home. You know, it, this was college town, so pretty small. It didn't take me long to get back to the dorm. And as I was pulling in, I thought, wait a minute. That was Monsters, Inc. <laughs> I thought, it, it, it's the same thing, the same setup, only the end is different. So this was probably the first pairing that I ever thought of that scenario. And so, Dan, do you agree that they work as a pair? Oh, yeah, Definitely. Similarity-wise, they both have horror as a business. Extracting, inflicting fear on unsuspecting humans is their day-to-day work. Mm-hmm. These are scarers. Not only that, but they have a detached view of the suffering that they cause, and they have arguments to justify it to themselves. So, like, the... The monsters regarded the kids as toxic. And so, oh, it's okay. You know, they're dangerous to us. We're the ones putting in the work to get this resource. And and we're the ones at risk. And we get that scene in Monsters, Inc. where Sully is in full scare mode to demonstrate for, like, monster students. And Boo sees him and is scared. And Sully has to reckon with what he's been doing all along. Right. Like the moment where it stares down. It's the central fear and violence of the setting, of the premise. 
Right. And we don't exactly get that moment of self-reflection among the staff of the agency in Cavern in the Woods, but uh, they do get comeuppance. Uh, they get spattered to pieces by all manner of beasts. <laughs> they get fed through a merman's blowhole. And we even have a central buddy comedy pair in both movies, both of whom are pretty well positioned on their respective totem poles. You know, they have some respect. They're not at the top of the chain. Eventually things are going to go wrong and they're going to have to talk to their bosses. Who's the Mike and who's the Sully? Not as distinctive with the personalities in this one. Yeah. They're just kind of there to banter with each other. They're, they're kind of like Statler and Waldorf. Mm, yeah. <laughs> not not too much other than they're just, you know, like you couldn't really describe Statler apart from Waldorf. That's what I, that's what I mean by that. Yeah, but they're also the whole detached and somewhat cynical perspective of what they're doing is uh, is a part of it, too. Oh, true. Good point. What about some differences, Dan? <laughs> uh, one of them's got a whole lot more blood. And yeah, I mean, one of them also ends with the apocalypse, which, you know, does not happen in, in Monsters, Inc. That's right. We got very different endings. In one situation, they learned to adapt, and in the other one, they didn't. So, what do you think, Dan, if we swap these endings? Oh, man. All right, let's think about that one. So, in Monsters, Inc., the kids all collectively learn about how the doors work, and they have, like, an uprising. They storm back through into Monster World, and they destroy the, the monsters of Monsters, Inc., of Monstropolis, or whatever it is. I, you know, maybe there's like, they sever the limbs and stuff, so there's some blood there, because if it's got to be a violent uprising. Now, what happens in the cabin in the woods? Maybe, oh, they realize, you know, what the the deep ones love just as much as a scary movie is they love a good Jim Carrey comedy. So Jim Carrey becomes the guy who's able to appease the old ones. Right, they just have all the comedians in cages. <laughs> Ready to be rolled out on the assembly line. Right. Uh, I think that would be funny. <laughs> that should be an option on the DVD. Watch that ending. Will Ferrell getting hit in the nuts in one cube. Yeah. <laughs> huh. So, Dan, since I foolishly lost our first hour, did you have anything you wanted to revisit Monsters, Inc.-wise? Well, one thing that I do want to talk through at some point which I got a little bit into with that one. Maybe we can do it, pick another movie in this this realm. But is is Pete Doctor and his many quirks, and maybe like try to assemble a, a grand theory of Pete Doctor's vision of cinema and vision of the world? Because I think I think there's a lot there. Well, you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. So Monsters Inc. is the first of four movies made by director Pete Doctor. And uh, he's been making them up through, I think, 2020 was Soul. Uh, his, his other ones are Inside Out and Up. And Up is a little bit of an anomaly of those, but all of the Pete Doctor movies have some business-like institution, again, postmodern to use that word again, where it's taking some kind of concept that is historically been like unquantifiable and mystical and unknowable. So like what drives the human brain and soul? What drives the afterlife? And basically shows them as business-like institutions operating like a sort of well-oiled machine in the first act up until something comes and disrupts that. And we get a little bit of that in Up 2 when they go into the the rainforest and there's kind of like the dog society going on out there up up is kind of a weird movie after the beginning. I think we kind of agree a lot of weird stuff going on in that one, but then the protagonists usually have like some sort of parenthood thrust upon them and have some sort of existential crisis where they're like grappling with taking care of something else in the new world, something that isn't themselves. Eventually there's like a big chasey scene. So I think monsters Inc has the best, big chasey scene with those doors in our, our lost recording. We talked quite a bit about the doors and how, first of all, they're just tremendous. The, the roller coaster 
aspect of them when we see those millions of doors. That's pretty awesome. And you agree with me on that, Brian, right? Yeah, I love the doors. It's like Portal six years before the game came out. They did a lot of great action and comic set pieces with flying in and out of them. And I think Monsters, Inc.'s chase scene with those doors works maybe the best out of all the Pete Doctor movies. Um, and then ultimately, like, they usually end up embracing some sort of paradigm shift. So in Inside Out, sadness is the one who causes the chaos at first. But in the end, they need to embrace what sadness brings. And that is, like, having more shading to the memories and the emotions that they feel. And I don't know, just you watch them all enough and they all start to seem like universe explaining Rube Goldberg machines almost as far as movies go. Um, but I tend to like them all. I also th- tend to think they work really well. I think actually Monsters, Inc. might be my favorite. It's neck and neck with that and Inside Out for my favorite among the bunch, although Up isn't too far behind either. And one thing about Monsters, Inc. that really resonates with me at least the past couple of years is it really becomes a story of parenthood once Boo comes into the world and Sully starts to get attached and it just kind of upends his life the same way that becoming a parent upends your life. I was telling Brian, you know, I don't really know anything about Pete Doctor outside of the movies he's made, but I would imagine that A, he is a dad, and B, he was probably not ready to be a dad when he became a dad and has like still processing that in his creative output because all of his movies have an element of like parenthood thrust upon you. And, and Monsters, Inc. in particular, I think really poignantly captures that to me. I don't know. I could talk Pixar for days, but I think uh, those are kind of some of my, my important thoughts. We have a 2319. So I want to see what the rule book is when they say we have a 2319. What, are, what does that mean? And what are all the other numbers? What are the other codes? Yeah. Right. And yeah, the 2319 is when a human artifact is discovered. Something's been brought through. Yeah, I wonder, do they have all the numbers up to then? And it, maybe it's just more mundane things. Things that don't require calling out the bomb squad. Yeah, and Harryhausen's too. I like that. That's another gag. Oh, right. They have the fancy restaurant. I'm a fan of that. One other thing I want to talk about vis-a-vis the monster world and the franchise of Monsters, Inc. specifically. So they have these scarers, this job that Sully holds and Randall and a few others, and they're the ones who go in and they scare the kids. That extracts the screams to power their world. That's a scarer. Now, at its core, this job is essentially being an actor. You're a performance artist. You're performing. And yet, the whole society really respects this career path. It's like you're going to be a doctor or something. If you're a scarer. Uh, But we talked about it a little in that Lost Hour. And it's kind of presented different ways in different installments of the franchise. Like, there's a little bit in this first one where it's it's kind of like being blue collar. Like, everybody's a working man. They got their lunch pails and their hard hats. Mm -hmm. uh, And they're heading into this dangerous environment, they think. So it's almost like being a coal miner or something. Uh, But then, in Monsters University, the prequel we see that Sully was like this prep kid. He was a legacy at the university and just this preternaturally talented scare prodigy. He doesn't even need to try. He's got this in his blood. Also, it's like a sport. They like have the scaring games or something. Right, I remember that. It's like turning it into like athletics and like a sort of physical dominance type thing. Right. And then in the Disney Plus original miniseries, Monsters at Work, which I bet some of you ain't even heard of that, but it's out there. One of many Disney Plus miniseries. Uh, That takes place in kind of the nebulous time between the main body of Monsters, Inc. and the prologue at the end, where society has successfully transitioned to laugh power. So it's establishing that new paradigm. And the main character of the show is a monster who just came out of the monster college with a scaring degree. And he's ready to go to work at Monsters, Inc. 
like the day that the factory shuts down. And now he's got to adapt. How can he use his skills and hopefully get a position on the laugh floor now that that's what it is? Right. Uh, but in that show, scaring is almost framed as like engineering. A lot of importance is put on that you need the college training. Like he's an ideally suited candidate for this ostensibly white collar job. And to have acting presented that way is so weird, so different from our experience. Yeah, that that is really interesting. I was telling Brian, sometimes these premises, I don't know how if they benefit from more scrutiny. This sometimes when you have like these fantastical world building things that work for a 90 minute movie, does it work for building out a whole universe and lore? And I think any of the Pixar ones that are kind of their own universe start to get weird if you think too much about it. I mean, Cars is the, easily the weirdest one of all. There's so many free, weird details in the Cars universe that as soon as you start breaking it down piece by piece, it's almost like pornographic thinking about like what what is all the messed up freaky details of this car world. And I don't just mean the prospect of how do cars reproduce, but like, I don't know. It's like indulgent in like thinking about is there a car? There's a shown to be a car pope. So what does that say about car cosmology and belief in a car deity? And okay, there's car religion. So has there like been car human sacrifice in the past? And like all sorts. I don't know. You could spend hours going down rabbit holes thinking about things. Yeah, I saw that in the spin-off planes there's mentioned that some of the vehicle people fought in vehicle world war ii so somewhere out there is a car hitler, car hitler. <laughs> oh man were there car cavemen is their car evolution they don't have hands brian they don't have opposable thumbs how are they building stuff well hopefully dan these are the things that cars four five and six are going to tell us yeah one more thing on monsters inc that I definitely want to uh, include in our conversation here is one one thing that I I definitely feel is that the very final scene where the door for Boo has been shred shredded and all that's left is the one piece that Sully carries around with him, but then Mike somehow reassembles the entire door and all that's needed is the one last piece and he puts it in and he opens up. And then we hear Boo say Kitty one last time. I don't like this ending is pretty beloved, but I really don't like it. I think it uh, it's unnecessary. Yeah, you don't need it. It's like a backtrack. Yeah, for a bunch of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's like the world has already moved on. And I really like the potent symbol of he carries a piece of Boo around with him. Like in this case, it's physically a piece of her door that he's carrying around with her. I think that's a potent image. It doesn't need any additional work, like any additional purpose for for that piece. But also just so much of that movie is thematically tied with parenthood and like the chaos in your life when they're kids and then they're out the door. Like, I think it cheapens it to say, oh, you'll just brute force everything back together and go back to that one special time. Like kind of undoes the, the magic of the theme for me. So... I'm I'm kind of down on that final scene. I concur. But yeah, Monsters, Inc., it's a great one. It's, you know, Pixar from their first movie through like their 10th movie was pretty, pretty reliable. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, one thing I shouted out in our sort of lost episode there was I remember when Monsters, Inc. was about to come out being in the movie theater and there was a teaser trailer for it. And the teaser trailer made fun of the first Harry Potter movie, which was also coming out that year. And so it was like Mike and Sully playing Quidditch. And it led into it with something like, we know the movie that you want to see this year, Monsters, Inc. (laughs) And it, it was along those lines, you know, quirky, timely reference. But uh, Dan said he hadn't seen this teaser trailer, so we got to track this down. I'm sure it's on YouTube. Yeah, I might have to go find that. Old commercials are fun. Something about them. It's like it was selling an idea to an audience at a specific time, and the culture has moved on. 
So there's there's just something quaint about old commercials. Actually, in the most recent episode of Buzz on Movies, they were talking about that too. Oh yeah, that how they miss old commercials. That everything is too mass produced now. It's just bigger companies making the commercials rather than more local businesses. And like it's the same commercials everywhere. At least that was their take. I don't really watch commercials, to be honest. I do streaming for pretty much everything. Right. Well, they also talked about that, that we, with streaming now, you're not seeing commercials all the time anymore. Right. It's like my kids don't even really get ads. They get confused when we're watching like a YouTube video and an ad comes up. Where'd the video go? Well, the way YouTube, they play an ad after five minutes. What's What's an ad? It's like, I guess, yeah, it's like a different time. It's like I grew up watching commercials all the time, so I don't know. Right. So we can always pick Pixar movies apart. Love to do it. But some things we have to do. we got to go in and put in our day's worth of work. And our main duty here, Dan, is to say, is it good? So what do you think? And we'll talk both, both movies. Sure. So is it good is our signature section where we each give the movies a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So, Monsters, Inc., is it good? First of all, yes, it is good. The question is, how good is it? And I am closer than I've ever been to giving it a masterpiece rating toward a good. Man, I love this movie so much. It's just so elegant in its world building. It just accomplishes so much, but it has such rich thematic roundness to it. There's so many layers you can think about in the storytelling. And it's funny. A lot of really good gags that hold up even after I've seen this movie like 20 times. Tremendous character design. Awesome chase scene. It's like almost apocalyptic at times. Just how like the world is like crumbling and I just something about it is, is always gets me. It's, it's really terrific. And it, it makes me emotional. Like it really does capture the feeling of the chaos of parenting a young child. And I know it's like a silly thing cause it's a kid wandering around a monster world, but it, it emotionally texturally carries that resonance for me. I'm going to still just by the thinnest of hairs, give this an exceptionally good. I want to give it even more time to grow, even though it's already been 20 years. Think a little bit more about it to see if I'm quite up there on a tour to good. As I've mentioned, I think the very final scene is unnecessary and undoes my goodwill otherwise at the ending and just doesn't quite get there for me the way that the cream of the cream of the crop does. This is just the cream of the crop, I guess. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I kind of was waffling back and forth as I was watching. Am, am I, have I landed at an eight on this or a seven? I'm going to stick with a seven for now, but the, the ceiling of a seven. So that's Monsters, Inc. for me, Brian. Okay, great. Now, for me, I think I'm at the very highest edge of the six out of eight. Very good. Almost into seven territory. I definitely enjoy this one. I don't know why it doesn't quite crack the seven for me other than well one thing is it doesn't make me cry and i feel like the pixar movies which followed led to that expectation like it wasn't a thing before this point but uh within a few movies afterwards it's like a truly great pixar movie i'm gonna be upset at some point uh, well, I guess I guess this one could. You, you were talking about it being very sentimental. I mean, when when he returns Boo to her room, and is trying to tell her that like things are changing and I'm going to be gone now, and I don't really know how to explain this to you. And then she opens the door and he's not there. There were there were some tears in in the Stalkup household. Okay. And I'm I'm the only one here right now, so that can tell you. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess that's right. I don't have that parental experience. That's true. You're right. One thing that was different for me watching this time than in the past was, you know, as a kid, I just thought, wow, this monster world's so cool, and all the door portals that's awesome look at that huge cavernous space that's got a million billion doors 
but this time I was really thinking, wow, Sully was really rude to interrupt Mike's date. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I was thinking more about the adult, adult logistics of things. It's like, this really would upend their day-to-day lives. It's like, they had a good thing going here. They were productive and successful workers. and Yeah, they were on their way to the top. Yeah. But uh, I, I definitely, I like it. I I would be open to a seven. I think we're we're not too, too far apart. It's a good movie. Yeah. And then The Cabin in the Woods, Dan. Yeah, so this one, I also am right around the border of a rating. And for me, the, the border is the five or the six. And I, I'm going to land on a, a soft six on this one. Very good. I do think this movie does some tremendously clever things. The premise and the execution of the premise and the way it builds and builds and builds across the whole movie is just really satisfying and, and clever and fun. Just a really cool premise and and pretty well done. The acting is hit or miss for me. And mostly the, the writing itself was good, like beyond the, the premise and the structure and all that. There were a couple moments... Although I really liked the stoner character that, that we talked about. I, I thought he was really funny. And I also thought it was kind of a visually ugly film. It just it seemed very uh, stereotypical of its era, color grading. And there were a lot of scenes, particularly like at the actual cabin, that probably looked all right in a theater. But when I was watching on my small screen, just kind of dark and and not very detailed and kind of hard to see what was going on. Um, and the, the CGI, you know, it was definitely, it was visible CGI, which whatever, that's fine. You know, it is what it is. It, it still worked for me overall. I, I do think it's a very good movie. I think, I think it's clever and fun. And I, I found some perverse pleasure in the way that it was kind of morally criticizing horror movies and horror movie fans at the end, despite kind of being one myself. What about you, Brian? Well, if you had to guess, what, what would you think I would rate this movie, Dan? Uh, man, probably a seven. So the bulk of the time watching it, I thought I was going to give it a seven. And I'll say now, I put this one on my 100 favorites movies list in 2013. And getting ready to watch it this week, I was thinking... I'm going to be objective about this one. Looking back, I don't know if this is like really a great film or if it's going to appeal to me as much now as it did 10 years ago. But then it was going along and I'm like, you know, this is pretty solid seven territory. I'm I'm like 85% sure this is getting a seven at the end. And then we got to the monster mash (laughs) and it's, it's amazing. There's so many scenes unfolding and they had to shoot all of them and sure some of them have animated elements but like it still had to get made and probably there were some human actors involved in some capacity and they had to think it all through they had to storyboard it if anything i like it even more now that i've been paying more attention to the physical side of movie making and just all the bits you have to plan out ahead of time so it bumps just past the line into eight for me. This squeaks in masterpiece. Tour de good masterpiece. I really recommend this one if you haven't seen it. If we didn't just spoil it for you completely, but I still think it's worth watching. Yeah. So Dan, thank you for helping me rebuild after our system purge earlier. It happens. Yeah, no worries. And I was glad we got to talk through it and you know, I always love talking Pixar, if nothing else. So that's always, we can always fall back on that if we don't know what to talk about in a future episode. (laughs) Or put another way, if we were going to have to talk about something twice, talking about a Pixar movie is something I was happy to do so. So no worries at all. Good. Well, let's uh, adjourn then this meeting of the Midnight Society. And thank you all for tuning in to the Goods of Film podcast. Dan, what will we be covering next week? Yeah, so I, I changed my mind about 10 times about what I wanted to pick. I, I didn't really lock too hard in on anything. And even as we were talking here, I changed my mind three times. Uh, but I think what I'm going to land on is this movie called Idle Hands. I-D-L-E, Idle Hands. This is a 1999 horror comedy that 
got absolutely panned by critics at the time. It got a 15% on Rotten Tomatoes, but appears to have gathered a cult following. And it appears to be like a horror stoner style comedy. So some overlap with what we talked about in Cabin in the Woods. So, Brian, that's what we're going to be watching. We're going to be watching Idle Hands from 1999. This this random movie I've never heard of before a couple weeks ago and curious about. Here we go. All right. Sounds like an interesting one to wrap out the month. That's like our big just about Halloween day recording. And yeah, looking forward to it. All right. Thanks for joining me as always, Dan. Thank you, listeners. This has been The Goods.